and welcome to the Nerdy Apologist podcast. This week we have the last session of the C3 conference that our ministry, Truth for Doubt, had the amazing privilege of being able to host. This week we have with us Dr. Omar Hamada, who is an OBGYN and has been featured on Fox News to speak about the sanctity of life. Dr. Hamada helps us walk through some arguments that helps us defend the unborn, but not only that, but he also helps us understand how we can share the gospel with the people who may be on the other side of the debate. So we really hope that you enjoy this discussion. Axonian, and uh, we, uh, we, you might have, I don't know, you might have seen him like on the news. And, uh, and probably we'll see him some more. But uh, we're glad he was able to come Sunday morning. And, and uh, we've been doing our C3 sessions in January, uh, current issues to help us uh, assimilate our Christian faith into different uh, issues that we find in our culture. So uh, Michael Badger and Katie Wilson, part of the Truth for Doubt uh, team, are uh, going to interview uh, Omar this morning. Uh, Omar is a doctor and he is a theologian and he's all kinds of stuff. He'll fill in the blanks for all that. And so we're glad that he's here today, brother. Thank you for coming. You guys take Thanks, it away. All right. Well, I just want to second that. Thank you for coming out. This is uh, really exciting for us. And uh, for those of you in the audience who, who may not know, can you just give, uh, I guess, a brief overview of all the things that you've done in your entire life, starting from age five and onward? Brief, no. Brief, okay, got it, got it. Well, I was looking at your Facebook profile, and I was like, oh my goodness, uh, my mom says that I can read good. Yeah, that's right. That's about all I got. Mine does, too. <laughs> that's good. So, You know, I think it can be summed up. Um, years ago, I was trying to define where I felt God was calling, and one of my mentors was Adrian Rogers, and he likes to alliterate. So I alliterated my life into five M's. So there's the, you know, MBA, business and leadership, medicine, um, healthcare, you know, all that stuff. Um, military, I was in uh, the Army for 14 years and the Special Forces for 10, the uh, Army Special Forces. Um, and then um, ministry, um, got a theology degree from Columbia, uh, biblical seminary in South Carolina, and got ordained probably, I don't know, 25 years ago now, um, and music, um, sing opera and play classical and jazz trumpet, so. Oh, is that all? Um, he's a man play of many talents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, can you explain a little bit, like, why you got into, I mean, this whole pro-life movement, I mean, because that's why you're here, you're here to talk about uh, the, the pro-life argument. Um, so why is that important to you? So there are really two parts to it. I've always been interested in engaging culture and helping people think rationally about important topics and not just accepting what we're told, you know, culturally and in the media and, you know, peer pressure, whatever. So I know a long time ago my dad started teaching at Summit Ministries with David Noble in Colorado Springs and sort of introduced us to apologetics and, uh, and the difference between worldviews. And then when I was at Columbia, um, Roger will remember uh, Brad Mullen. He was our apologetics professor uh, there that really uh, drilled into us the different worldviews and the importance of understanding and differentiating between them. Um, so ever since then, you know, early 20s, really just being interested in that. And then starting to engage with Ravi Zacharias' ministry and then with Chuck Colson's ministry as a Colson fellow. Um, 
and really trying to define, because, you know, we're told today, um, you know, if you tell the truth, you're being mean and unloving, when in fact, being mean and unloving is not telling the truth. So learning to tell the truth with compassion, but plainly, um, without attacking people, but attacking the ideas. So I think that's an important distinction that we need to make that we don't have in our culture, is we tend to equate ideas with identity. And um, when we attack an idea, we attack the person, or a person feels like we're attacking them. So I think it's important to separate the two, that we love people, we're all made in the image of God, and we're all redeemable, um, but some ideas are just bad, and they're evil, and they need to be challenged. Um, so with this pro-life thing, um, I'm an OBGYN as well. Um, I got boarded in a couple of different things. But um, not bored in a couple of things, but boarded. Classical <laughs> yeah. um, singing was just yeah, like, oh. that's right. Um, but, um, you know, pro-life was always one of those issues that I thought, yeah, that's important. But I had a focus on other things. The past two years have been very challenging for me personally in various areas. And uh, I had a health problem, ended up in surgery in the hospital for a couple of months. Um, and my last surgery was about a year ago. So I was laying in bed a week after surgery, recuperating, and Governor Cuomo signed the legislation in New York that radically changed their laws towards abortion. And I Facebook a lot, but I never really tweeted much. So I Facebooked something, and then I decided, well, I'll just cross-tweet it. And I think it was the Holy Spirit just pushing, that, pushing me in that direction gently. And then I went to bed. And the next morning I woke up, and my phone had just almost exploded. You know, it, um, by the, within 48 hours, we had over 10 million hits on that one tweet and was getting calls from Fox News and all these other folks. Russia Times in Moscow, I mean, everything. So it was crazy. So all of a sudden, I felt like the Lord had just sort of thrust me into the whole pro-life movement, which was important to me, but it wasn't, you know, really what I'd focused on. So that was sort of the beginning of it, and then everything else has sort of come from there. But as I think about it, it's really, if you look at the, and we can dig into this, the differences between the worldviews of the Christian worldview and the secular humanist worldview or, you know, any of the others that take off of that. Um, the issue of the sanctity of life is probably the primary issue that differentiates everything else. I mean, it comes down to, are we made in the image of God or are we not? And what does being human mean? Is there anything special about it? And everything else stems off of that. I mean, the LGBT issues, um, um, you know, whatever. So. Right. Absolutely. Well, we'll definitely dig into that. But before that, you, uh, you were recently in D.C. for the March, uh, March 2 life? March 4, four life. life? There we go. Um, how was that? Was it uh, kind of mind-boggling? I mean, you know, President Trump was there and all that kind of stuff. So how was that? Yeah, it was great. So interestingly, um, back in November, Lila Rose with Live Action invited me to go out to Beverly Hills for her first um, live action gala. Um, and, you know, got to meet a lot of people. But one of those was a lady named, a, a young lady named Christina, or um, Kristen Gallick. Um, and she happens to be the first marketing director for March for Life. They only have nine people on staff, yet they have an incredible impact on our society. So um, she invited me to the Rose Dinner, which was uh, Friday evening after the march. Um, and she told me there that um, March for Life has had an open invitation for any president to come speak for years, ever since you know, their, their founding, um, you know, over the past several decades. And not a single president has 
taking them up on that. And they sort of stopped asking, but the invitation is open. So 24 hours before the march, President Trump's people called them and asked if he could come speak. So it's like he volunteered to come speak. He wasn't asked, he volunteered. Um, so that was hugely impactful. The march itself, just a show of the numbers of people that are not just interested, but passionate and committed to saving the unborn uh, was, was amazing. Um, and of course we get labeled by the left um, and attacked as misogynists and women haters and we want to rip rights away from women and um, you know whatever. Of course that's untrue and ultimately they're all, we'll get into this too, all these distracting issues that take us away from the primary issue of the question of is this child in a mom's womb life or not? And that's, that's really the only issue. Um, so just to kind of start off, um, we have a broad, pretty broad question. Just how do you feel about the abortion topic right now in our culture as a whole? And do you feel like people are becoming more pro-choice or pro-life? Um, because we would kind of, we're kind of made to believe that a lot more people are becoming pro-choice. But do you think that's true or not? Yeah, I think this past year we've seen a lot of people um, trend back towards the pro-life position. Mainly when the left became so radical and showed their, their true hand and their true intent and agenda. People sort of, you know, even in the center, just woke up and said, wait a minute. You know, okay, first trimester abortion, you know, I could sort of understand, but, you know, killing a kid that's about to be born? No, that's crazy. So I think people have started understanding a little bit more about the true agenda or design behind the entire movement. So I think um, the pro-life movement has... Um, has moved forward significantly over the past 12 months. What yeah. was your other question? Was that just how do you feel about it as a whole, as just the abortion topic, yeah. how it's going in our culture as a whole? Yeah, so, I mean, that's the key thing, right? I mean, if Satan can convince people that we really don't matter, we really don't have value except in what we do, um, how productive we are in society then it opens the door for everything. I mean, the people who are most valuable are those who are the best producers, and those who aren't, they're just valueless, right? They're not worth anything. Whereas the Christian worldview is the complete opposite. Um, we're valuable simply because we are. We don't have to do anything. We're just made in God's image, and we carry, um, you know, we carry him in our hearts. So we are not as a universalist message, but you know what I'm saying. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And as you said, it, it seems like you know both sides are they're they're so polarized in, in either direction. Um, and and as you said before, you know the main question is you know is like what is the unborn? So how would you answer the uh, I guess the argument that you can hear often that the unborn is simply just a, a clump of cells and, and that's it. And, you know, getting rid of them is just like, you know, clipping a toenail. Yeah. Um, that's their basic argument, right, is it's just a clump of cells and it doesn't really matter. But we know that that is not a scientific um, foundation. That's not a scientific argument. That the child, even as a zygote, is genetically separate from mom, is very distinct and, and identifiable and is an individual. Um, and the only thing that stands between um, uh, a zygote and a screaming baby in your hands is just time. 98% of the time, if we leave a pregnancy alone, it's going to result in a full-term delivery. 98% of the time. Now, you know, 
I'd, I'd say after eight weeks. I mean, you know, in the first few weeks, it can be up to 50% spontaneous miscarriage. But after that, you know, uh, the fetal stage, you leave that child alone, and it's going to end up in your arms as a screaming kid. So the only, the only thing different is just time. Right. So I guess a quick follow-up to that, too. Uh, one of the arguments that I've heard before as well is that, uh, okay, so it may be a, uh, I guess, a, uh, uh, technically a life, but it's just like a, this parasitic thing that's just sucking life away from the mother. How would you answer that? Um, you know, however you want to define it, it's not sucking life away from mom, but mom is actually giving it life. Um, and, uh, you know, all were, so how would you answer, you know, a one-year-old? I mean, a one-year-old is, um, unable to sustain its own self without assistance. I mean, you've got to feed it, clothe it, change it, put it to sleep, you know, give it shelter. Mm -hmm. So what's the, at what point? Do we say, you know, what about a kid who was born brain damaged? You know, now they're 10 years old. Um, are they not life? I mean, because we have to care for them and cater to their needs. Um, so I think we can't use, all these are distracting questions, right? The ultimate issue, and I think what we keep going back to is um, whatever you want to term it, you know, whenever you want to say um, fetal pain starts, whenever you want to say now it's a viable baby, um, those are all distracting issues. Those aren't the questions. The question is, is this life an individual, distinct, separate life, or is it not? Um, and we know in every other form of life in the world, we define life as the moment of conception, um, or where there are a distinct number of cells that are together, pluripotent, um, becoming something more. Right, right. So another argument, and it kind of goes along with what you're talking about um, that we've heard before, is that the unborn does not have a fully developed consciousness, so it's not a full person yet, so abortion is okay. So how could we respond to that argument? Neither does a 12-year-old. <laughs> you know, I mean, people say that for guys, it's, it takes us to 35 before we're actually a fully developed consciousness, right? <laughs> you ladies are earlier. Um, so, you, you know, we don't define life or value based on consciousness. I mean, I, know, I like Ben Shapiro's answer. Um, so you're saying basically when you're asleep, then we can kill you? Yeah, right. I That's mean. good. Yeah. So uh, kind of going along with, that, I guess, that parasitic argument as well is that the unborn is, is part of a mother's body. Um, and therefore, only the mother has the right to decide uh, what to do with it, and it's nobody else's business whatsoever. Uh, how would you answer that as, as the baby you know, being a part of the mother's body? Certainly the baby's a part of the mother's body, and the mom has definitive rights. And, you know, I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday who is on staff with um, one of our congressmen here in Tennessee, and he was making some good arguments, you know, in terms of, well, how, how far in do you want the government to get between a physician and their patient? I mean, how much do you want the government to tell a physician what he or she cannot do with his or her patient? Um, same thing about, you know, in the bedroom or whatever. And, you know, if we believe in small government, and I don't want to get political here in church, but if we believe in small government, you know, we don't really want government's interference. Um, but when the innocent are threatened by anyone, including their own parentage, um, I believe that good people have to step in and protect them, whether that's a mom or a dad or, you know, whether it's a born child. I mean, we have DCS to protect young children against abusive parents. And if a mom 
has it in her mind that she wants to take the life of her child, I think it's our responsibility as believers to step in and try to convince otherwise. Yeah. So have you been in the situation where, uh, I think you may have mentioned it earlier, where uh, people are just wanting to take women's rights away? Uh, have you been accused of that before? And if so, yeah. how did you answer it? Yesterday. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> you know, every day. It's, it's, right. not, it's not anything. I was accused yesterday of being a misogynist and, you know, hating women and wanting to take oh women's my gosh, rights away. Get off the stage, sir. Yeah, I know, really. But, you know, the truth is, I mean, and, and I love, who was it that said this? Um, I was listening to somebody yesterday, and I can't remember who it was, but uh, they basically said, oh, it was at the March for Life dinner, um, and it might have been Bill Lee, uh, our governor, um, said that, you know, uh, pro-life is pro-woman. I mean, we want to protect women. We want to protect women's rights. We want to take care of women and children, and, but, you know, to basically step away, it's like um, Wilberforce said, you know, we know the truth now. I mean, these are live human beings. You've seen the truth, you know, whether you decide what whether you decide to, you know, to walk away or engage, you can't say that you don't know. Um, so um, I think that's just, what we see a lot is we are attacked and labeled and called names to try to shut us up and to try to um, isolate us and negate our positions and marginalize us. But the truth is, you know, who are actually doing damage to women and children, who are lying to women, who are telling them that it's just a clump of cells when it's not, who is causing millions of women in the United States to suffer post-abortive effects psychologically. Um, it's not the pro-lifers. Right. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Excuse me. My turn. So, <laughs> uh, no. So coming at this kind of from a different angle, um, so some people would say is if we make uh, abortion illegal or we ban it, a lot of women are going to die because they have these back alley abortions. Do you think that that's grounded in actual fact? Or like, is that an actual reason to not ban abortion? Or how would you respond to that? Certainly there's some fact behind it, that if abortion is made illegal, that people will have more back alley abortions. I mean, that's, that's factual. But again, what's the real argument? That's just a distracting one. So we know that before Roe v. Wade, there were about 1,500 back alley abortions in the United States the year before. The year after Roe v. Wade, it was close to one, over one million. So, you know, that's a huge differential. Um, we can't help what people choose to do, but I think that we have to be responsible through our legislation mm-hmm. um, to protect those who can't protect themselves. And I can make the same argument. You know, I could call a, a mom with... You know, holding a one-year-old up here and say, you know, I know that kid's making your life very difficult mm. and I know that you want to smother the child because you can't take care of it, so why don't I just kill it for you? Um, that'll make the problem go away. That way you don't have to worry about, you know, whatever. And that's irrational. And everybody would say, that's crazy. There's no mm. way we're going to do that. But it's the same thing. The only difference is it's out of sight, out of mind, right? We know that with ultrasonography... Um, 80% of women who go in for an abortion with the intent of having an abortion change their mind and walk out without an abortion once they're able to see their child on ultrasound and see the heartbeat and see the movement. Uh, So I guess, I don't know, this this whole thing is a sensitive topic, but I guess even getting even more sensitive, uh, you'll have a lot of people who I think will uh, maybe agree with you up to a point, but then they say, okay, but you know, what about in cases of incest and rape? Isn't it cruel to force a woman to carry a child 
uh, from circumstances uh, such as that. Uh, how would you answer that type of question? That's difficult. And as a male, um, it's impossible for me to really understand that. Um, but from women who I know who have been raped and who have had incest committed with them where they've gotten pregnant, um, most everyone that I've spoken with um, has decided to keep the child. And um, there is rage against the offender. But, I mean, I've never carried a child within me. But from what I understand, it doesn't matter where that child's from, that mom still feels an affinity and a strong maternal instinct for that child that she's carrying. Um, and I know many people who are the result of a rape. Um, so, you know, the argument that I've heard really is, so we're asking an innocent victim to pay the penalty for someone who was guilty. Um, and that is a difficult question. I mean, there's a lot of emotion surrounding it. But, you know, like I, like I said, I think most women that I've spoken to who have been raped or have gotten pregnant through incest um, have kept the child and haven't regretted it for a second. Right. You've mentioned this a, a couple times that uh, you've been called, you know, misogynist and all that kind of stuff. And you just said that, you know, as a man, it's hard for you to relate to all these circumstances. Um, how, how do you address that? So uh, I've seen people where, um, oh, I've actually talked to guys who've said that, you know, I, I can't speak into this abortion topic because I'm a man, so I just need to leave it to, to the women to decide what's right. And, you know, I've seen uh, Q&As with, you know, Ben Shapiro, you mentioned him, where, you know, a woman said that, well, you can't speak into this because you're a man. So for all the guys out here, how can, how can we speak into this really sensitive topic? I think the easiest answer is, well, if you say men can't speak into it, then we need to rescind Roe v. Wade because it was nine men who decided that. Right. So um, I, I think, you know, the issue is they want men to speak into it who agree with them. But those of us who disagree, they want to try to marginalize. Um, so and also it's a false truth that we can't have an opinion about something that doesn't directly affect us. But it does really. I mean, if we're dads, that directly affects us. It's not our bodies. It's our wife or our partner's body in the secular world. Um, but, you know, dads are still involved. And I think that's one of the other issues in our culture today is we're mm. marginalizing and negating the effects of men and masculinity in our culture. And I think that's hugely damaging. Right. So if people have accept, they, they accept the fact that Norman Baby is a human being, but then they kind of want to shift it to um, care for the mother, that if um, it's dangerous for the mother or if the mother can't take care of the baby, and no one's going to help her, it would be better for both of them to just abort the baby. So what would you say in response to that? I mean, if we follow that, again, I would say, and if we follow that line of reasoning, again, I'd say, well, you know, your kids are two, three, and four, and you can't take care of them, so let's take them out and kill them. I mean, it makes no rational or moral sense. Mm -hmm. And it's just an extension, you know, okay, so it's just a matter of location. The child is in the womb, but it's still a living child. So we can't use that argument rationally mm -hmm. uh, to say that. Um, and, you know, what we try, we're accused of, you know, all you do is want to save the babies, but then you just toss the mom and the baby once they're born. And that's not true. I mean, there are so many ministries and churches and people that uh, foster, that adopt, that give, that serve. Um, and we don't want to 
uh, discard or disregard women after delivery at all or children. So um, the pro-life movement is there as well to help even after birth. Um, and that kind of just, you kind of bring up the um, argument that would you do, would you think the same way if it was a toddler in front of you? And that reminds me of, who did you interview, Megan? Megan Allman. She had, they talk about trotting out the toddler, right? And so I feel like a lot of these arguments, kind of what you're saying, you can um, kind of rebuke that by saying, would you say the same thing about a two-year-old or a three-year-old? And obviously they would say no. Yeah. So, yeah. Although now some of the more radical ones are saying, yeah, sure. Oh now they're saying five. You know, I mean, at what age do you draw that line? And, you know, they're saying when they can make their own decisions, a lot of them. But we're seeing the same in the whole argument with physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia, even in Canada, Oregon, uh, the Netherlands. um, Now there's not even informed consent. I mean, if they decide a person is not worth keeping alive, they will, even though the person doesn't want to die, they will go ahead and euthanize them in some places, like the Netherlands and even in Canada. Right. So how is, how is you being an OBGYN, I, I guess, have you had a lot of instances where you've talked to women personally that are struggling through this? And if so, like what? I guess for people in the crowd and they're wanting to give some words of encouragement, you know, what kind of words of encouragement have, have you given or that you would think would be helpful for you know, somebody uh, in the congregation who may know someone personally who's thinking about uh, getting an abortion? Yeah, I think it's more than words. I think you know, there's action, and you have to be willing to sacrifice and help these ladies out because they're struggling. And some of it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of times psychologically like a life and death issue um, sometimes. And I mean, it, it changes everything. Um, so we have to be sensitive to that and not just you know, say, yeah, I'm praying for you and tap them on the shoulder, but actually dive into their lives and do whatever we can to help them as a church, as friends and neighbors, and referring them to resources like pregnancy support centers. Do you think the church right now is doing a good job of caring for women who have had an abortion or um, have thought about it? Or do you think that we still have a ways to go in supporting them? Yeah, in general, I don't think we are doing a good job, and I think we have a long way to go. I think we're doing a good job, like the culture, with rage and, um, and uh, stuff like that, uh, offense, but we're not really doing enough. And I think we're moving in the right direction, um, and I think we realize that now that there's a lot more to be done, and I think we're moving in that direction. One thing I thought you were, gonna, you were asking earlier, too, was um, you know, when the mother's health is at risk, that's one big argument that yeah. they're using. And you may have that question coming up. I don't yeah, you know. You stole my question. I'm sorry. You want to ask right. it? Yeah, what do you do if the mother's life is at risk? That's a great question, Michael. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, so that's something else that, the, that they tend to use that's really a very poor argument. There's not a single reason. That was the tweet that sort of went viral um, last week. They, um, they put it up uh, last year. Um, there's not a single reason in the second or third trimester, which is what they were really concerned about mostly in New York, um, to abort a pregnancy, to abort a child. Now, we have to understand definitions, right? Um, an abortion, medically speaking, uh, and I, I, I differentiate the medical terminology from the colloquial cultural terminology. So medically speaking, an abortion simply means ending the pregnancy, right? And it can be done in many different ways, even preserving the life of the infant. Um, 
and we call a spontaneous miscarriage a miscarriage, we call that a spontaneous abortion. So um, it's not, so in the medical terminology, there's no intent uh, given to that. In the colloquial usage of the word abortion, it's about intent. So do we intend to kill the child before delivery or not? If we do, socially, we call it an abortion. If not, we call it a delivery. So when I'm using this language, I'm not using the medical language, I'm using the understood cultural meanings. Um, so there's not a single reason to terminate a pregnancy with abortion, killing the infant first in the second or third trimester of pregnancy. Delivery, yes. Some need delivery, and some, as a consequence, will kill the infant as a consequence, but there's no reason to kill the infant first and then deliver. Um, for example, I mean, you know, I had a 20-week pregnant patient, um, a believer. Her husband was a pastor. She had severe preeclampsia um, and HELP syndrome, which is a very life-threatening, dangerous situation in pregnancy. She needed to be delivered. And at 20 weeks, that baby was going to die. There was no way around it. If we kept her pregnant, both her and the baby was going to die. We're going to die. So we had to deliver her, and the baby died. Um, so sometimes delivery is mandated, but Abortion would mean that I would go in there with forceps and pull the baby apart in pieces. And there's no reason for that. There's no reason to kill the baby first or inject its heart with potassium chloride or put you know, the joxin in the amniotic fluid or whatever. Um, there, but there, is, there are reasons for delivery. Then they say, you know, well, what about an ectopic? Well, we're talking about intrauterine normal pregnancies, right? So an ectopic, by definition, is not an intrauterine normal pregnancy. An ectopic is going to kill mom, and it needs, it needs to be medically removed or surgically removed, either one. But, um, and that's unfortunate, but, I mean, there's really no choice about it. Yeah. Um, so for people in the audience who, who may want to go and learn how they can better support the argument for life, uh, do you know of specific resources that they can go to to, to help them in that? Sure, there are a lot. I would Google um, three people that I think are excellent at it. I think Ben Shapiro does a great job. Yeah. I think Ravi Zacharias does a great job, though that's not his focus, right. but he does when he addresses it. And then Scott, uh, Scott Klusendorf has a ministry um, that focuses on abortion and life and um, you know, does, a, does a fantastic job as well. Awesome. That's actually something that I can put on my Facebook biography is that Scott Klusendorf liked a thing that I typed on somebody oh. else's page one time. So take That's that. That's awesome. Well, well, we should well, have put that on the screen. I know. Man. Can we get that up there, please? <laughs> uh, well, he, he commented on my post this morning when I said oh. I was coming here to speak yeah, online. Fine. Whatever. So, he does it to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess just to wrap everything up, uh, and, and I think this is almost the, the crux of the issue or, or one of the most important things that we have to keep in mind as Christians, but uh, how can we as Christians best use this horrible situation, this horrible topic, uh, to share the gospel, uh, to, to show people Christ and love during this? Well, I think, you know, just painting the distinction between light and dark and the two worldviews, you know, the Christian worldview and the humanist, secular humanist worldview. So one thing, too, I mean, you know, we look at abortions being a huge problem in the United States, which it is. I mean, I don't know the actual number this year, but let's say 800,000 abortions. Um, worldwide, there are over 40 million annually. So what we have here in the United States is a drop in the bucket to what's going on all over the world. But we live here, and we want to impact our culture here. Um, 
and I think, you know, it, it's not the focus. The focus is the gospel of Christ and the lostness of man and the uh, availability of redemption of our hearts. Um, and all this stuff that we run into is just an outpouring of whether we are following Christ or whether we are following the world and the flesh and the devil. So, um, Is there a way that you think is, is good for us to, uh, I guess, maybe to, to share, I guess, maybe the forgiveness of, of Christ for people who, who have gone through an abortion? Yeah. So that's the other thing is that I hate is that we seem to come across, and some of us do come across, so hateful towards women who have had an abortion or who are contemplating an abortion or um, who are struggling through those really difficult decisions. And they are. I mean, they're very difficult decisions. It's not like, oh, I'm going to go kill my baby today. You know, it's, it's like, for some of them, I mean, it's do I lose my marriage and my family or do I have an abortion? Or are my parents going to kick me out of my house and where am I going to go? Or do I have an abortion? I mean, they're serious, life-altering decisions that are not taken lightly many times. Sometimes they are. I mean, some of us, I see some of my friends here from med school um, where we trained, some people use abortion as a method of birth control. I mean, they come in and, you know, I've had seven, I've had eight, and I've had nine abortions. It's like nothing. It's contraception. That's different. That's a different mentality. But still, we treat everyone with love and acceptance and uh, try to help them see the love of Christ and also protect the baby inside of them. Absolutely. Well, thank you again so much for for coming out. Um, This has been fantastic. So thank you a lot. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, You didn't ask enough questions. Oh, sorry. So I I want to hear a little bit more uh, story, Omar. I know you were Special Forces, so you can wing it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the faith story. You know, give us a Cliff Notes version. You, you grew up here. You went, you know, Union kid. That's right. So, uh, you know, you grew up in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just share a little bit about that with us. So I've been a believer my whole life, um, practically. I came to Christ at four years of age, born in Tallahassee, Florida. And uh, my mom and dad uh, at the time went back to Beirut. And uh, my sister was born there. Many of you know Sandy. Um, and uh, she, lived, she and Andrew live here in Jackson. Um, and then we came back to New York, and I ended up with a disease called ITP, idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura. And this was 1970, 70, 71, and, um, 1970. And I um, had been exposed to varicella, chickenpox, and couldn't um, take steroids at the time, which was the cure or one of the things that would help reverse ITP. Um, and I started hemorrhaging and, you know, I, I was four. I don't remember a whole lot, but, um, you know, mom tells me that the doctor said, well, he's got some brain hemorrhaging and all that. And, um, you know, even if you survive, it's not going to be, um, much. So, um, the whole church was praying. It was New Hyde Park Baptist Church on Long Island. And my dad was conducting a symphony, um, and gave testimony. Uh, actually he prayed to God. He said, if you heal my son, I'm going to make a public testimony. And it was told by the school, um, you do and we'll fire you. Uh, and this is back in you know, this 1970. Um, but it was New York. So, um, so anyway, I dreamt one night that the Lord Jesus touched me. And the next morning, um, uh, the doctor called my parents and said, you know, I'm not sure what happened, but his counselor are completely normal. So you can come get him, take him home. 
Um, so that was sort of what I attribute as my self, date of salvation. Mm. You know, I, I gave my life to Christ and have followed him ever since. And, I mean, it's not like I was a raging sinner at three years old. I mean, I was, but you know what I'm saying. I wasn't out on the streets, you know, pushing drugs or, you know, whatever. So I don't have that kind of story. Um, but I remember here in Jackson, we moved to California from New York and then to Jackson, Tennessee. Um, and I remember as a, as a young kid, I probably walked the aisle three, four times um, because people kept telling me, you're too young, you don't know what you're doing. Um, you're not old enough to be saved. So I kept imagining, you know, I'm going to go to hell because I don't know, you know, whatever. So I remember I probably walked the aisle and gave my life to Christ probably four times um, and then finally got baptized. And it was all before 12, so maybe I need to do it again. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a longer discussion. Okay. <laughs> you, you, you brought your family. You want to introduce who you got with Part of my family. Yeah. So Josiah, you want to stand up? Josiah's 10. He, he doesn't. He's in up. fifth grade. It's all right. He doesn't have to stand up. There he goes. Nicholas is 14. Come on, buddy. Now, Nick, can I brag on Nicholas? Yeah, go ahead. So he started wrestling two years ago. And last year, what was your record? Like three and 12? And last, this past year, you did like what? Like f- f- 13 and four? Amazing. So he's, a, he's really... So he wrestles dad, and he's, he's about to pin me one of these days. And then my mom, and you all know her. Yeah, welcome. And then my stepdad, Wayne. Wayne all right, King. Wayne, thanks for coming. So I have two more daughters. Uh, Annalise is actually at home planning her Sweet 16 party that we're going to go back for this afternoon. Um, and then Gabriella, who is a sophomore at Florida State University in Tallahassee. All right. So... If folks want to uh, just keep up, maybe, and want to pray for you because you have a voice that many of us don't have, but uh, want to keep up with what's going on, um, you know, in the different arenas that you get to speak into, how how can folks do that? Um, Facebook is probably the best way. Facebook, Twitter. um, So, and on Twitter, it's just at Omar Hamada. And on Facebook, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to find. Okay. So, and then, yeah, just prayer is, I I covet your prayers. I mean, all of us are under attack. I mean, Satan hates all of us, hates our families, hates the mission of Christ. So all of us need prayer. But particularly, I think those on the front lines um, under constant withering attack, I mean, from the president on down. Um, So do you you have something that you are, uh, that you're wanting to do? in this field or maybe in another field of, that, that you might have a, your foot in the door with some things where you can have a little bit more of some influence? Yeah, and the Lord is really opening those doors, you know, in ways that I never realized or even thought about. Um, so just pray for his will and we'll leave it there for now. Okay, okay. Are you going to be singing with the Nashville Opera or anything? <laughs> you know, when I was in Memphis, I was singing a lot in Nashville. Since I don't sing country music, yeah. I haven't been able to yeah. well, break in. The Lord is uh, changing you. Then you, need to, you need to think about that, brother. <laughs> uh, Maybe you and I can do a duet. All right. Let's go. Well, thank you for coming. Let's pray Thanks, for Jack. you. And, uh, and then uh, can you hang around just a minute or two yeah, so sure. folks can visit if they want to? Yeah. Okay. Lord, thanks so much for the opportunity. Uh, to, to think about this issue that is really close to your heart. Uh, children, 
that you want to save. And so I, w- I would pray, Lord, that you would give us a sensitivity to um, the people around us who struggle with this issue and that we would be your compassionate voice uh, for children that can't speak for themselves, for moms who are uh, maybe living in fear and uncertainty. And uh, I pray for Omar as you've given him opportunities to uh, speak and uh, write and uh, be present uh, with folks who many of us will not be able to. And I pray you would give him discernment and wisdom and uh, Holy Spirit-led uh, um, defense and offense for the gospel and for uh, children. And so we thank you for the opportunities you've given him and, and open those doors some more, Lord. Um, we thank you again for being with us. Lord, if there's somebody here who doesn't know you, but through watching Christians worship, watching us take the, the communion elements, listening to this uh, interview today, your Holy Spirit can use any of this, and I pray that they would reach out, call out to you. You'd save them. In Jesus' name, amen.